Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. And this week, we are going to bring to you the top five '70s crime movies. How are you feeling about the list this week, Frank? It's a good list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we probably overextended with this category just a little bit in the sense of like this is a huge category. Right. It could have been a top fifteen, like easily. Yeah. And I, we, I also didn't even like consider some things. I think that would be like mainstays of, I guess, what you would consider seventies crime drama. Like what? Uh, like the the first two Godfather movies, for instance. Yeah. Um, to me, those are more. I don't know. Like mobster movies, or I don't know, mafia movies, which is like a separate category. The way mm-hmm. I look at it, um, we also, you know. No, oh, there's there's so many that like you could have considered. Right, like we left the Chinatown off this <clears throat> list because we've already talked right. about it in previous episodes, <clears throat> and it just felt like it was too recent that we've talked about it to go ahead and include it on this list again. But I think I, I'm assuming Chinatown would be number one on yeah, this list. Ch- Chinatown's an unfair movie because it's number one on a lot of lists. Right. Yeah. So we kind of shot our shot our wad with that one earlier, <laughs> but right. I'm sure it'll come up again at some point. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, this list is also interesting because it's going back to what I consider more like there's less objectivity in these picks. Like these are very subjective to me and like what I really like in movies and especially crime movies. Um, so there's some stuff that might seem like glaring emissions maybe. Although I can't really... I, I I wouldn't define as glaring. I, I think one of the things we're going to find as we talk about these is that you and I have, while we have a lot of overlap in crime, where there's very distinct differences in what you enjoy yeah. in crime movies and what I enjoy in crime movies. True. And I think one of the things we're going to find is you do like things that tend towards procedural a little bit more than I, I do. do. And where, Character studies, too. I really love like character-driven. Sure. And, and yeah. And it's really interesting when we get to number one, how I think those two things end up overlapping in really great ways. Right. I agree with that. And, but yeah, I'm much more in the vein of 1940s crime movies where there's a clear hard-boiled protagonist and femme fatales and those kind of things. And while there's certainly some of that stuff in these movies, right? Um, yeah, there's there's definitely a couple of them that are much more procedural in yeah, I, um, the way they operate i like my protagonist antagonist waters to be kind of muddied so yeah i would even say that even in the killing as much as you like the killing it's a very procedural movie from the crime perspective of things yeah um and sometimes i find i find those movies to lack character or they don't lack character they lack real depth of character sometimes yeah, that's interesting uh and I think I'm more drawn to the characters in those circumstances where sometimes you're drawn to the circumstances a little bit more. Yeah, I think that might be true. Yeah. But I mean, also the circumstances, what leads the like the thriller aspect of things, I right. think. So, I mean, it's a trade-off, obviously. Yeah. Um, you just want to jump right in and get started? Sure. Okay. So, number five on the list this week is 1971's Clute, directed by Alan Pakula. Starring Jane Fonda, Donald Sutherland, Roy Schneider. It has a 93% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 80% from audiences. You hmm. want to go ahead and walk us through this movie a little bit and tell us what you like about it so much. So, 
prominent executive in this um, chemical company, I guess, disappears and implicated, or there's a letter <clears throat> that's found on his desk that's written to a high price call girl. Um, that's the Brie character, uh, the Jane Fonda character in the movie. Um, another fellow executive at the company hires an old friend of his, John Clute, who's a private detective to kind of like sort of try and figure out like maybe if something like there was some foul play involved and if what, what this woman's involvement is. Um, so Clute, you know, basically tracks this woman, like bugs her, taps her phone and, um, spies on her. Uh, she's kind of a like mentally damaged but i don't know if that's necessarily accurate she definitely has like some neuroses she's in therapy that's one of like the recurring themes is the her like in her therapy sessions um i think there's trauma and neurotic behavior and probably some disorders that yeah. develop out of all that and her trying to reconcile the fact that she has these aspirations but she genuinely like only feels like she's in control when she's basically being a prostitute mm-hmm. like that's one of the better um i don't know if you want to call it a soliloquy or whatever but she's um like talking to her therapist and like basically reveals that right. it's like the only time that she feels like she has a measure of control over her life um they try to connect the grunwald i think is the name of the missing executive um to other prostitutes um one of whom had been beaten and um nobody can really identify that this is the guy um while the investigation is occurring uh, uh sutherland clute sutherland's character clute and uh fonda's character basically like fall into a like an actual romance where she's like having sex with them because she genuinely cares for him and not because she's being paid to do it um it's it's revealed what would you say like maybe 60 percent of the way through the movie that the guy that hired clute is the actual like killer 50 to 60 um and was basically trying to frame grunwald for uh um use his disappearance to frame it so he could um basically cover up the fact that he was like dallying with prostitutes um in the end um sutherland and uh fonda are moving in together like they're gonna start a relationship and she's still like i guess kind of uncertain whether that's what she wants mm-hmm. um like i i think the ending is pretty ambiguous as to whether or not you have any kind of hope that it's gonna last and i think you probably think that eventually she's gonna like because she says at one point like very clearly like all these great things about Sutherland's character, the things that she likes about him and how he makes her feel. And yet she still is actively trying to destroy it like at every opportunity, which is, um, that's actually, that that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And it's a really small scene where, um, like she's on the bed and he's sitting across the room and he goes over to her and like caresses her face. And it's her voiceover of her talking to her therapist while it's happening. It's, it's a really good scene. Yeah. Um, really like poignant on their part, but like, then you get the, like her kind of just like the black hole of like her her life that kind of is like sucking her into like self-destruction um two of my favorite actors from the 70s i love jane fonda um donald sutherland is 
<clears throat> maybe one of my favorite actors. Well, definitely one of my favorite actors of all time. But like, I just love Donald Sutherland and like everything he's in. Um, yeah, just so people know, like Frank is everything Donald Sutherland and Frank is like a freak for mostly. Like he yeah. loves Donald Sutherland. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know of any Donald. I can't think of any movies I dislike that he's in. I don't know. Like he always elevates every movie he's in, even if it's like mm-hmm. a shitty movie. Like Time to Kill, you know, I like because of Donald Sutherland. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a good movie. <laughs> um, really fantastic performances by both of them. Uh, Fonda won an Academy Award for her performance mm-hmm. um, as Brie. Um, I think it was nominated for Best Screenplay, too. Um, it's interesting because from a crime perspective, it's not very compelling. Um, number one, because you find out who the killer is, like, super, like relatively early considering how much investment in the actual crime portion of it is like the identity of the killer so knowing like early it's a little surprising um so yeah that's my biggest complaint about this movie i think overall is that watching it i didn't think that the crime elements were what made it interesting and it is an interesting movie like there there there's really good things about it and i didn't think the crime aspect really was it they reveal the killer too long or too too, too soon um ebert who loved this movie he gave it three and a half stars out of four makes the a similar comment he says that it doesn't scare us very satisfactorily maybe because it's kind of schizo there are scary shots of a prowler for example and shots of hands gripping a mesh fence shots that are not very satisfactory because the wrong point of view is established one thing about a thriller is that the threat should always be seen from the point of view of the threatened we don't like looking over the killer's shoulder at his victim shots like that interfere with our desire to identify with Mm. the victim and he's scare and be scared in a satisfactory way and so in some ways he's criticizing the point of view that in our other series kind of we've been talking about for a while of like the slasher genre he's criticizing that point of view shot for this and so like i i got it and here's why i'm bringing that up is because once it's revealed about halfway through they continue to use those shots right and they've already revealed who the killer is right, so it doesn't really make much sense it doesn't really point. make much sense to me and i was just kind of confused by those scenes just stylistic i think yeah um so you and i had talked off air last week when we were talking about these movies um, and you had just watched Clued, actually, like, the mm-hmm. day that I think that we talked about it, or, like, the night before. Yeah. And that that was the first thing you said, was was that was a criticism. And I, I was trying to think of, like, a like a defense of it or a justification, and I don't know that I really have any, except yeah. that I think I just don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what overpowers that criticism to you? As you said, the performances. What else do you like about this movie? I, I, I think Pacula is, is a really competent director. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the way that he shoots. I mean, obviously, one of my... I don't know. Like, one of the things I say all the time about 70s movies is I love the look of them. Mm-hmm. I like the grittiness, like the darkness. Um, I think he has some really creative shots. Like, there's... <clears throat> you know, Fonda coming up the elevator that's shot from above and, like, looking down on her face. And there's... Stuff that's, like, shot through these, you know, lead glass windows, like, into rooms and um, a lot of low angles of people that you just kind of feel like these are people that are, like, lost in their own different ways and, like, looking for connections with other people. And 
not really like there's you know i mean he did all the president's men and he did um parallax view and those are both like fantastic movies as well um but i i like i just i like the intimate nature of it like again i'm always going to be a sucker for donald sutherland and anytime i can talk about him um i'll talk about him and it really is you know those two specifically sutherland and fonda's performances that elevate it um i also think it's interesting from a crime perspective because she is a criminal you know she's a prostitute Mm -hmm. so and she's dealing in a world that like is on the precipice of violence all the time and that's the one thing that she you know it's her controlling the act of sex that she like feels empowered by and like she doesn't feel empowered by anything else and i think that's a really interesting oh absolutely i think that i think as a character study of brie i think that's the most fascinating thing about yeah. this movie and i i think that like you talked about i think those scenes with the therapist i think the way that she behaves because you can see it manifesting itself the behavior that she's describing throughout the movie with the Sutherland character, right. you get to see it and you get to see that she's self-aware of it. And I think that's extremely interesting yeah. and she doesn't know how to control it. And I think, I think in maybe in different ways, like I don't know about you, I can identify with that to some degree, like the idea of not being, of being self-aware of problems and still right. not I mean, dealing with those problems at times. I mean, I, th- I think everybody can to some degree. But I think like, we all do that. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, but I thought it was a really interesting from a character study standpoint, especially with the kind of in 1971, I thought very probably controversial nature of, of the subject matter. Yeah. So somebody asked me today at work because we were talking about the podcast and they asked me like why I like the 70s so much. And I, I think one of the things I like the most about films of the 70s is that you're moving away from like the studio system directors of like the middle part of the century. And you haven't quite gotten into, like, the polished film school product directors that come into prominence in, like, the end of the 70s and throughout the 80s. And you have these people who, these directors who are just always willing to take chances and aren't afraid to talk about uncomfortable things. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's funny because, you know, you you look at another movie that has a prostitute as the central character in Pretty Woman. And it's a very much more glossy look at, like, you know, a high price call girl. Whereas this is very, I mean, she's beautiful and she's polished and she's glamorous at times, but there's also times where she just looks like an empty shell and mm-hmm. she looks like, <clears throat> I don't know if it's the first therapy scene. It's either the first or second therapy scene. I, I, in my mind, I think of it as the David Bowie scene because she looks like Aladdin Sane in it. Um, but she I, just, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh-huh. She just looks dead. Like her eyes are flat. She's uh-huh. not wearing any makeup. Like she's got this almost like haunted, like deadpan look to her. And it's, it's just really a brilliant performance. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really unfortunate that because of her political affiliations and, you know, kind of her, um, activism, yeah, her activism that she, she got kind of shit on a lot, like from the eighties on where people just weren't, weren't interested in like anything that she did yeah um but but jane fond is a really great actress and she's definitely like one of the best screen presences i think of of the 1970s yeah see i personally like as much as you love donald sutherland uh, first of all and i think you'd agree with this this is her movie oh right yeah like the the she she controls this entire movie right and now i think you know pacula certainly does a really good job of filming her of, you know, I, I won't say she's likable. Cause I don't know if I like her as a character. I certainly, I, 
can care for her for her in some ways like i can feel some sort of emotion about that character right for i there's some pity there you know there's some respect there i guess like in the sense that she's self-aware and she like you know knows what she's doing a lot of times she's you know um i think donald sutherland i know that he's supposed to be the quiet silent type i think he just disappears in this movie a lot of times so it's interesting because like i kind of think that's the point in a lot of ways is that you have your your central and it, it's funny because it's named clute so it's named after sutherland's character mm-hmm. but it's more about her right um but it's this really controlled desirable like object of lust for most people mm-hmm. and there's so many times where they use like her voiceover framing like a scene where you're it's almost like you're the voyeur into like she's the greek chorus to her own life i guess if mm-hmm. that makes any mm-hmm. sense where you're like mm-hmm. kind of watching like the internal monologue while she's maintaining a facade like externally and I don't know if she's supposed to be likable, but I think she's supposed to be relatable. And I think Mm -hmm. she's supposed to be, I don't know, like I, I, it's a captivating performance. Like it's it's a brilliant performance. So, and I think it really like highlights the, just the sense of like emptiness to somebody who can seem to be like, so put together and so controlled, like they can have this like emptiness inside. I mean, it's, um, pretty fascinating it's it's really like one of my favorite performances of the 70s is is i i I don't think i'm imagining this i'm pretty sure i read somewhere in terms of the reference to the name of the movie is that someone a producer or somebody said you can't they had a different title for it and it's like no it's got to be named after the detective Hmm. and that's where they ended up going and because it was an odd name include I think they just ended up going with that. I don't yeah. know if that was the original title or not. But yeah, it sets you up for the idea that it's going to be from his perspective or it's going to be more about him. And right. it's 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 interesting um, in that regard. But it's also a bit of almost false advertising, I think, because it's really not so much about the investigation so much or about that character. It's It really is about... Yeah, I mean, he, he, he really is kind of like the, the deus ex machina of the movie where he's just kind of propelling... Yeah. The stuff along that, like, gives you those glimpses into her life. Yeah. And then the idea that this guy is going to somehow domesticate this woman mm-hmm. at the end, which, you know, feels doomed to failure. <clears throat> Not only from, like, the way it's, it's filmed and presented, but just from her own, like, you know. Like, basically, like, I'm sure I'll be back in terms of, like, going to see the therapist again. Like, this isn't going to, like, cure her. Yeah. I also find it troubling. And by troubling, I don't mean necessarily, like my i'm offended or like you know i think it's wrong but that the clute character is so adverse to sleeping with her or giving into the idea that she is this desirous object but then he just does and I don't know what to do with that necessarily. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's interesting. Um, and that's a that's about halfway through the movie too. Is like he just kind of gives in and, uh, and then it's just like now, what are you supposed to do with his character? Right. Like I don't know if it feels like a hundred percent earned at that point. 
Yeah. Um, that he would do that. But I also think that it's just kind of like what happens with her. Like that's yeah. just sort of. Yeah. I mean, it didn't feel inaccurate. It didn't feel. Yeah. And maybe that's why I'm troubled by it is because that yeah. is just what happens. Uh, you know, I mean, and that is probably her life. You're right. Because when I think of this character, I think of very, a very specific person in relation right. to this character. And it's like, that is just kind of what happened. But she doesn't feel, she doesn't feel that way about it. Like, to her, it's actually like, a, like, her feelings towards him are, I don't know if special is the right word, yeah. but they're definitely, like, unique to that circumstance as opposed right. to what usually happens when she sleeps with a man. Sure, and more, more, more what people would consider typical, I guess, or right. like normal. It's like, it's like genuine, like right. human affection, sure. as opposed to a business right. transaction. Yeah, where she can be the boss. Yeah. So. Right. Yeah. No, I think from this, <coughs> I think from a standpoint of you know the the sexual themes of the movie, I think from a character analysis standpoint, I think it's a really strong movie. I'm just. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think it's a crime movie there. It's just, so uh, I do have uh, Roger Greenspun of the New York times. I'm just going to go through what he says about this real quick. And I think, I think it's, I think it works to, to what we're, where we're just kind of trailing off here when we're talking about this movie. He says that actual intentions of Clute are not all that easy to spot though. I think they may have to do more with its intellectual aspirations than its thriller plot, which I think we probably agree with to some degree. Yeah. Uh, for this is a thriller in which even the climactic terror seems more like interpersonal relations than climactic terror. And the psych psychopathic killer hooked on self analysis keeps a wire recording his latest murder as if to carry his guilt around in his pocket. Pakula, when he is not indulging a subjective camera, strives to give his film the look of structural geometry, but despite the sharp edges and dramatic spaces and cinema presence out of Citizen Kane, it all suggests a tepid, rather tasteless mush. The acting in Clute uh, seems semi-improvisatory, um, and in this, Jane Fonda, which is good at confessing, is generally successful. Everyone else merely talks a lot except for Sutherland, who scarcely talks at all. A normal, inventive actor, he is here given precisely the latitude to evoke a romantic figure with all the mysterious intensity of a youthful Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, that's, yeah, that's really funny. That's a good know, line. I, I don't know Calvin Coolidge well enough to know, but it feels, it feels like that's a, it's pretty, pretty hard it's a, dig. It's, it's a dig. Yeah. It's, it's, um, <clears throat> right. Um, I mean, I agree with some of that and some of that, I think like. I don't know. Well, so I think really it's that first line. It's like the actual intentions of Clue are not all that easy to spot. And I don't know what the intention of the movie is necessarily. I think it's just, um, I mean, it's, it's very open-ended, you know, it's, yeah. it's about, it's about this woman and it's about like, yeah. without moralizing or, I don't know, sermonizing you. Like making you consider her as a person, yeah. like a per, you know. And again, this is something I love about movies from this era, and we'll talk about this a few times, probably with every single movie I would think, um, except maybe one, where you really have to consider like, do I relate to this person who's like otherwise considered a fringe member of society? Like, do I have 
like a personal connection with that. And I, I, I mean, I, I think you do. Yeah. I think you, no, I, I agree. Yeah, I, I, <coughs> I, re, I relate certainly. Okay. Any final thoughts on this? No. Um, this was a really difficult one, and there was some other stuff that actually like almost like knocked this off the list. But mm-hmm. I just love her performance like so much, and I maybe I read too much into Donna Sutherland's like. <laughs> side looks and hangdog expressions uh-huh. and I, I, I view yeah. that as like phenomenal acting because yeah. I just love them okay um, so number four on the list is John Cassavetti's movie from 1976 The Killing of a Chinese Bookie starring Ben Gazzara Seymour Casal and Timothy Carey has an 80% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 83% from audiences uh, did you want to explain the plot of this movie and what you like about it so much? So, Gazzara plays um, Cosmo Vitelli, who's a um, war veteran who operates a burlesque strip club in um, New York. Uh, he has these grandiose ideas that he's like creating art, but basically people just want to see like the women get naked. Um, you learn early on that he had a loan out from some like low level, like mob, um, shyster who he's finally paid off in celebration of paying it off. He goes to a casino and basically immediately goes like $25,000 in debt. Um, then the gangsters who run the casino try to strong arm him into the titular, like killing of the Chinese bookie. Um, who's one of their rivals. Um, which Cosmo like initially um, is resistant to, but then is kind of forced into because they sort of threaten like his livelihood and the girls um, ends up being like some kind of ridiculous, like combat veteran badass or something. And like murders the guy and a few of his henchmen and um, gets shot in the process. Um, and in the end uh, kills, like gets rid of most of the mob and, sort of loses what he loves most, which is um his girlfriend that he's, you know, who refuses to be with him because he, like, won't tell her basically, like, why he got shot or won't get the bullet removed. Um, but still has, like, this really, like, positive, um, sort of, like, pragmatic attitude towards life and really, really great scene at the end where he's talking to the girls and it just sort of ends after that. Um, one of, like, really fantastic performance by Gazzara. Um, I, I love the way that John Cassavetes films, um, he's got like one of the most controlled, like cinema verite styles of like any director, uh, especially from this era and like some fantastic movies in the seventies. I, I like, I like the crime element in this. And again, it's, it's sort of similar to how I feel about Clute <clears throat> because it's secondary to the character development of the people in the movie. Um, even the mob people who I would say are like secondary characters for the most part, you know, but like Seymour Cassell is like, like glad handing and friendly, but like slimy at the same time. And and it's funny because like at first you get the impression that these guys are really like, like tough and intimidating. And then you start to see like the cracks form and like that facade and that they're, they're really just kind of like small timers who are trying to act like they're big time and. You know, Cosmo kind of comes off as, um, I don't know, like, sort of, like, idealistic and 
maybe like impractical but then like you see that he's this like trained killer basically who's able to carry out what really was a suicide mission that they had sent him on to get he rid of He criticizes someone early on and it's something that stuck with me as I was watching it because it, I think it set an expectation that it ended up utter, undercutting is that he criticizes, criticizes someone for not having style early mm. on. Right. With the with the intention of he does have style. And he does to some degree. It's sure. Some, 70s polyester. Right, yeah. He, disco suit style. So it's like you they set it up I think to like what you're saying is that here's someone who yeah might be impractical that has style over substance but and i thought that's what was fascinating about the plot of this is that yeah there's this twist and it mentions it does establish early on that he was in korea and that he has killed people and he doesn't really want to talk about it very much and the twist of this movie is that like you think like oh here's this sucker that they roped in through some gambling debts to kill somebody for him and he's not a killer and then you find out, oh, he is a killer. He's very, right. he's capable. He's more capable than they are. And he actually has a hell of a lot of substance to him, you know, not just style. And I, I thought that was a, fe- not that it hasn't been done before, like in in some ways, but I thought it was a very, right. It's, it's, it's not a, it's not a twist that you sit there and think like, oh, twist. Like that, that, that's, it's just a very subtle thing that happens. Yeah. Because and, they don't belabor the point. And like, right. that's to me, one of Cassavetta's strengths is that, <clears throat> he can he can deal with complex issues without like again like sermonizing you about how complex the issue is and here's this guy that came back from the war who's in debt to the mob that finally gets out of debt and then gets right back in debt who's just trying to be this purveyor of art and is sucked back into something he doesn't want to be but when he is, he's still able to do it. Like he still is mm-hmm. like more competent than them. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is there's um like the muscle of the uh, of the mob, um who's like played as like this intimidating, like hawking almost like Frankenstein, and you know Gazzara recognizes the softness in him and basically like lets him leave, and he does leave. Um, you know, and survives because he's smart enough to realize that he's not in the same league as this guy. And in like, and it's, it's a trope in like a lot of like movies, especially after this in like the eighties and stuff where you've got the Patrick Swayze, you know, roadhouse style character who looks like he might be like, you know, a soft, like ladies man, but is actually like this hard ass. Uh, yeah, he's a dancer and right. but he's actually, a but he can ass. still like, sure. Beat up everybody in the bar right. or whatever. Sure. Um, and it's done here in such like a subtle and effective way, I think. And Gazzara does a fantastic job, like as, um, as Cosmo. Yes. <clears throat> really the, like, the, the biggest character in the movie, you know, the one that like you're focused on the most, um, and rightly so, cause you know, it's the, yeah. he's, he's the star, yeah. um, sort of like supported by the, the way he treats these women, like these strippers who, he treats his human beings and he like, you know, he has his favorites that he takes out and he treats well and his girlfriend that he treats well. And, you know, you can see like some loyalty in him that he's obviously not like sleeping with the other girls. Yeah. Um, just really fascinating character study. Um, some really, in my opinion, like amazing cinema or, um, like directorial choices. Uh, there's one scene early on that I, I love where, 
Cosmo's out front and he's trying to get people to come into the club. Like, you know, he's out there like kind of being like a huckster almost. And you see like somebody from the point of view of a, like a taxi driving away. And the shot is, you know, inside the taxi as it's pulling away. And then it cuts to like a medium shot where there's traffic going in between them. And it makes it really feel like alive and vibrant. And like the city is like a living thing. Like it doesn't feel like a set. Again, like, to that point where it's, like, pseudo, like, cinema verite, where you feel like, you know, Cassavetes is just, like, filming stuff as it happens, and you're mm-hmm. watching, like, this slice of life. Um, some really great dialogue in it, too. Like, there's a scene, like, one of the last scenes in the movie is, um, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, like, Mr. Sophistication. Mr. Sophistication um, is upset because he feels like he's not getting enough credit for, like, what he does, which is, you know like the vaudeville part of this like burlesque striptease and he's angry at the girls and the girls are angry at him and uh cosmo says you know your truth is my falsehood and my falsehood is your truth and it's just this really i don't know like pseudo eloquent way of like explaining that you know the thing that matters to you isn't necessarily the thing that matters to me but it's okay because like we each have these things in us and I don't know, like I just it's really it's it's really powerful because here's a guy that has a bullet in his side and just had his girlfriend mm-hmm. break up with him and still is dedicated enough to this life that he's in his mind that he's building. You know, he's willing to like sit down and be this like wise, almost like philosophical yeah. like father figure to these people. That he genuinely seems to love. I mean Sure. So I want to build off of that, but I want I want to read Vincent Canby, what he ultimately says about this movie. So Vincent Canby, the New York Times, like famed critic, says the movie is like the last three of the director's films in a way that it resolutely refuses to come to a point strong and interesting enough to support the loving care that's gone into its production, particularly on the part of the actors. Watching the film is like listening to someone use a lot of impressive words, the meaning of which are just wrong enough to keep you in a state of total confusion, but occasionally right enough to hold your attention. What is he trying to say? It takes a little while to realize that maybe the speaker not only doesn't know, but doesn't even care to think things out. So, I do think he brings up an interesting question to some degree. Is, yes, this is, I think, another character study movie. Mm -hmm. Um... And I think that as with any character study, I think it's up to you as the viewer to kind of take what you want out of it. Sure. But my question to you is, given the ending you were just talking about and all that kind of stuff, how do you feel about that? What, who do you think that character is and what do you think that they're trying to get across? Or what is the question that's being asked to, that they're leaving you with? I think the biggest question that comes from, from Cosmo is how far can you ever get away from your past? Like how much can you ever change? Hmm. No matter how much you might want to change the person that you were to the person you want to be, like how far can you ever get away from that like person that you were? And one of the things can like, I'm a pretty like unapologetic, like John Cassavetes fan. Like I, Hmm. I think he's an amazing director. One of the things I like most about him is that this is a guy that was acting in movies you know, and financing his films through his acting endeavors. Sure. So he was making these movies completely outside of the studio system without any constraints on the stories he wanted to tell. And he really is just telling stories about people. And 
<clears throat> it's a ludicrous setup in a lot of ways. I mean, like, it sort of is like, um, I don't know, like, first blood or something in the sense of, like, the man pushed too far who, like, you don't think is going to be able to do mm-hmm. the things he can, but then, like, surprises you by mm-hmm. whatever. But done in such a humanistic way. And I, I really yeah. think, like, because everyone in that movie is trying to be something other than what they are at heart. Like, the mobsters are soft, and they're trying to be these hard, like, you know, gangsters. And the strippers are really just women that take off their clothes on stage and are trying to be, like... I don't know if all of them are trying to be more than that, but definitely, like, Rachel wants to be, you know... She doesn't want to just be a woman that gets naked. She wants to be a girlfriend and a wife and a... You know, she... Definitely wants to be taken seriously as a person... Mr. Sophistication is, like, you know, the MC for, like, a a strip show, but wants to sing, you know, French songs and act and, you know, it's just, it's really interesting and particularly framed around, you know, Cosmo, who tells the mob guy immediately, like, when he gives him his last payment, because the mob guy, Marty, I think is his name, is like, oh, you know, you're a really good guy, like, it's been a pleasure, and he's like, I never want to see you again. Um, you're a scumbag. Like this is a lot. I'm never doing this again because it was a means to an end for him to achieve the stream. And now that he feels like he's there, he just, he wants to divest himself of like that person that he was like the person that would take mob money to open his club. He doesn't want to be that person anymore. And he gets sucked back into it. Right. And a guy that killed people in Korea who wanted to come and live like a quieter life of like more, like more luxurious and more, you know, definitely like happy who gets sucked back into that as well. Yeah. I no, I think I think that's a very good reading. I, I, I think it leaves you with a couple minor questions too, in terms of how you feel about that character. I mean, I think I could see different interpretations of of people kind of respecting him in some ways. Right. And I could also see interpretations and I think I'm somewhere in between, but I probably lean more to more towards the idea that I'm just kind of left with this guy who's like a sad little king of a sad little world. Right. And I think he's still so, using yeah. a will to power to control that sad little kingdom. Right. And is using wor- you know, using these grandiose phrases like my falsehood is your truth and right. in order to control people and manipulate so them. So there like to to your point there's a really great juxtaposition that actually like highlights that that point really well. So early in the movie I think maybe, like, the first or second scene, um, Cosmo is, like, keeping the crowd warm in between acts Mm -hmm. while Mr. Sophistication and the dancers go and change. And he's being heckled. Like, we just want to see the girls. We just want to see the naked girls. You know, and he's trying to keep the people interested. And then later, after everything happens, he's... Or maybe it's, like, right before... I can't remember when the scene exactly occurs. But he's there, and he stops the show... To make them spotlight the bartender, the waitresses, like all these people that are just part of this Mm -hmm. world of his and give them love. Like, these are great people. These are my family. I love these people. And it really is that he, I don't know if it's sad. I mean, it's, it's what he wants. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not, he's not settling for less. He's not, you know, in his mind debasing himself. Mm -hmm. He's doing exactly what he wants to do. And aside from losing, you know, Rachel, his girlfriend, like living a life that he really wants to live. And even that he's willing to not go get the bullet taken out 
mm-hmm. you know, because he doesn't want to go to jail, basically. <clears throat> he's willing to lose that in order to keep everything else together. And I really think he yeah. looks at himself as like the, you know, paternal figure to these people mm-hmm. who he looks at as like sort of like misfits or cast offs or whatever. Sure. It's very much like the Burt Reynolds character in Boogie Nights. Right. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if they're actually, because I know that, um, pretty sure that Paul Thomas Anderson's a pretty big fan of Cass he, he is. I wonder yeah. if, um, yeah. if there's some inspiration there, maybe like in, in yeah. Jack Warner. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, it's... These are the kind of movies that I love the most, where it's, like, ambiguous as to how you're supposed sure. to feel no, about I, it. Sure, I agree. Yeah. And I, I really like it when a director isn't ham-fisted in telling you how you should feel about somebody. Like, right. I don't need somebody, you know... Kind of like we were talking about last week with Heaster, like, you know, about uh, uh, shortly about Lost in Translation. I think that's what I liked, and I had to go watch it again, but it's like... I think that's what I liked at the time about Lost in Translation is like I didn't think Coppola was necessarily telling you how you should feel about these characters. Right, they're just presenting characters. Right, yeah. And I think that some people yeah. just aren't fans of that kind of yeah. cinema, which yeah. I, I mean, I understand that. Sure. You know, and... Yeah, I mean, as a clear warning about this movie, I think you'd at least agree. Like, this is, like you said, it's using a lot of cinema verite techniques to where it's a very detached observation of what's going on a lot of times and it's slow i mean a lot of people would think this movie's slow and it's a slow build i think it's a great payoff when you get to the 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 key notes of this film but i think a lot of people would think this movie's really slow i think the vision i think the visuals and the characters are strong enough to carry you through even some of that slowness yeah um but it builds and it's like yeah, there, there's some really beautiful, like, there's really, really well done, like, night scenes um, outside the bar, in, like, the diner, mm-hmm. the, that when, di- they're, when they're strong-arming them, which one, one of my, like, another, like, fantastic scene in that movie where they're... That's one of those scenes where I wish, kind of like the diner scene in Thief when we talked about it, but there's certain scenes in these movies that we talk about, it's where I wish we had visual, a visual element yeah, to it. So nice. we could pull that scene up and talk about how fucking great that scene is. Yeah. Like from the camera work of moving back and forth, keeping you off kilter, just like Cosmo is in that scene. Also allowing the actors to just play their characters and Gazara is amazing in that scene of showing his really good. nervousness, but is also kind of trying to stand up to him a little bit. And like, it's such great acting. And right. he definitely is maintaining like a level of cool that sure. And like seeing all the others try to like kind of slowly manipulate and strong arm right. and just the way that the camera goes back and forth, but also is keep it, you understand what's going on still, despite that, and it's like it's masterful that scene, like that's how really it, how it does all that. And I, I just yeah, that's one of those things where I wish we could pull it up and look yeah. at it. Cassavetes is, is is a pretty brilliant director. Like I I really mm. love that guy a lot. It's actually um Criterion put out a uh, what well, just I I mean I know we'll talk about him again in the future I'm sure, but um what is the critical opinion of Cassavetes? Do you know like when he was directing? a lot of his films um i mean he was nominated for an academy award for a woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown i think mm-hmm. that one um i 
I think he was pretty well received. Critically. Was 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 his directorial style considered during that time period like too inventive? Uh, like too because because Variety really... trashes it. Like for this movie, Variety trashes the cinematography. So right, maybe remember Variety's the mouthpiece of like the studio system. That's what so... I'm saying. So is like is it only because <clears throat> it's like so opposite of what the studio system was doing at the time? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm not really that knowledgeable on like criticism. Like I know, yeah. I know about John Cassavetes because he was considered a great director when it, when mm-hmm. I was introduced to him. So I had the ability to watch a bunch of movies and really like, you know, fall in love with them because they're great movies, but I don't know at the time. Like, I don't know yeah. if he was derided okay. or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, he, he just never seems to me for, and you've talked about him for as long as we've known each other, how much you love Cassavetes, but, and I've always, I've seen, I've seen Cassavetes and been captivated by him, like just, flipping through channels late at yeah. night and seeing movies of his. And I still haven't seen as much as I should because it feels like he's one of those directors that a lot of people that know film seem to really hold up to like a really high standard yeah. of like, but most people don't know. I mean, and really, I don't know what happened that made him fall, like not be talked about in the ranks of, the Coplas and you know uh, look, the Altmans this, and this is just like whatever like armchair I don't know Monday morning I don't know whatever yeah. me like talking out of my ass yeah it's entirely possible that because they were independently financed that they just kind of fall off the radar because nobody's out there like pushing them sure man you know um I don't know so he was married to Gina Rowland like that was his wife yeah. um and she's in uh. She's a woman on the verge, her and Peter Falk. Um, I don't know, like, after his death, because he died in the early 90s, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and his son became, like, a director, Nick Nick Cassavetes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how much people were pushing his films to be seen or, you yeah. know. Because remember, like, there's that long stretch of time where if you're not, like, a schlock B-movie getting pushed out to, like, direct a video... Or, like, a big-budget studio movie that's being, like, marketed. Like, it's probably pretty difficult to find your way onto a video store shelf. And, I don't know. I mean, maybe his stuff was just difficult to see. Um, I think the first time I saw Woman on the Verge is the first movie of his I saw. And I think I saw, like, a bootleg copy of it sometime in, like, the late 90s. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I really don't have, like, an actual answer okay. to that. Um, <coughs> any final thoughts? Um, I, I think your caveat to this is actually pretty good. That is, it's a slow burn and you really have to invest yourself and the crime elements don't really like truly come into the forefront until midway through. And then they're not even really in the forefront at that point, but just amazing character study. I think it's a really great movie to watch. I think it's got a lot of really interesting, inventive techniques to it and just really worth checking out. And a lot of good thriller aspects to it at times, Uh, you know. And I think if you've never seen a Cassavetes movie, I don't know if this is where I tell you to start, but like, I I think it's enjoyable, and I think that it's a see. I would take the exact opposite opinion. Is I think that I would tell people maybe to start with this after seeing it now and seeing some of other Cassavetes, just because it does have them those thriller and crime elements to yeah. it. People might be able to relate to that a bit more. Might uh, might set false expectations. Maybe right? Yeah, it could. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so number three on the list is Fred Zinman's 1973 film, The Day of the Jackal, starring Edward Fox and Michelle Lonsdale. has a 90% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 88% from audiences. Do you want to go ahead and explain the premise of this movie and what you like about it so much? Uh, so... Oof. I mean, the premise is basically that the French uh, resistance, the OAF, I think is what they're called, um, wants to get rid of Charles de Gaulle, who they feel like has betrayed them by ceding control of uh, Algeria back to the Algerians. Um, They feel like that's like a betrayal of whatever, like the French nationalists that live in Algeria. Um, They try to assassinate him. They fail their leaders one of their leaders is is executed <laughs> one of my i i don't know maybe most unintentionally funny scenes in like any of these movies where um the guy who's the leader of the resistance is like not a single french soldier or raises a rifle against me and is immediately like jump cut to him being like executed by firing squad by a bunch of french soldiers mm-hmm. um so they decide to hire uh, an assassin who's known only as like calls himself the jackal um, it's implied that he's been involved in a couple of like really high profile assassinations of political figures. Um, he gives them pretty like large demands and is told just to leave me alone while I take care of my, you know, my business. So then it becomes almost two movies playing out simultaneously where you're watching the Jackal's prep work and groundwork in order to get to a position to assassinate De Gaulle and the French government and French Secret Service's efforts and British as well to um basically to find out about this assassination attempt to find out what the oaf is planning and then basically to like figure out who this guy is and to stop the assassination um and it almost plays out really like again as two separate movies up until the last seven or eight minutes when it kind of just all comes together yeah i saw it as three acts because i paid attention to that um Maybe it's the three times I fell asleep too, huh. um, but it's three. It's three separate acts. It's 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 him getting the hit, right? And that's the first act, and him preparing, him getting in country and preparing further, while at the same time the police kind of get on the case, and then that plays out parallel. And then the third act is them playing out parallel, coming towards the day of the assassination, and things kind of going awry for the jackal as the police are maybe getting closer. And then like you said, the seven and eight minutes where it comes together at the end. And he's making the bad decisions to keep going when he really should just like cut and run. Sure. Sure. Um, Because he knows that he's, you know, like found out, but he still is so conceited that he thinks he can still outwit him. Yeah. Um, So what I like about this movie, um, you, you said it in the opening that I really am into, like, procedurals when it comes to crime. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I like the most is when you see the procedural aspect of the antagonist as well as the protagonist. Yeah. And I love the I love the interplay of the Jackal operating, like, autonomously, kind of, like, in the shadows and, you know, securing all these things that are going to get him in a position where he can mm-hmm. assassinate de Gaulle. And... The police, you know, especially um, the lead detective, like piecing together these minor clues that they find sometimes through just as like 
disreputable means. Like, you know, they get mm-hmm. some information out of, like, the torture death of a prisoner. Right? <clears throat> um, but how they're coming together as well to try and, like, figure out who this guy is. And um, there's the scene where, you know, the jackal steals the birth, like, the identity of a dead child to get a passport. And then, like, very similar later where they figure out that that's what's happened and they have to go and figure out, like, Mm-hmm. whose identity he stole and right. what he's traveling as and um fox's performance as a jackal i think is like the right blend of charm and menace mm-hmm. um it's got very much like a like a tom ripley um like elaine delon tom ripley mm-hmm. you know like sociopath mess under the veneer of like this culture general basically like chameleon yeah you know a guy who's willing to sleep with a contessa and then sleep with some like reedy you know gay professor mm-hmm. all just to get to the point where he needs to get and sure. easily willing to murder each of them in turn right um i love the the way that they film paris in this movie and the way they film like the european countryside mm-hmm. um it's got some really beautiful vistas to it. It's got really good, well shot, like interior scenes. Yeah. Something um, like crazy. Like it's like twenty five different locations throughout Europe are used in this film. Like maybe maybe it was more, maybe it's like thirty five. It's 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 an insane amount of like actually getting to see Europe and film, like yeah. in like a lot of different places. Yeah. And beautifully shot. Yeah. And yeah. just his his ability to adapt to their ability to catch him. And stay one step ahead of him, even if it's like like the slightest hair's breadth of a step. It's it's very tense, um, to the point where you like. So it, I, I'm. I don't know if this is one of the criticisms of this movie, but mm-hmm. one of the things that I find funny is that this is a movie where if you know anything about history, you know the end, right? right? Like you know going into it that Charles de Gaulle does not get assassinated. Sure. So. You know he fails, and yet you're still so invested and on edge, wondering whether or not this guy is going to get away with it. Because he seems, even when like his facade starts to crack, and he's like more open about committing the murders, like to get away, mm-hmm. he still feels like he's ahead of them, you know. And mm-hmm. um, it's just it's it's mm-hmm. really really well acted. Um, a, a little dry early on, I think, but. Like, that's made up for by, I think, like, the last third of the movie, half of the movie to third, um, which is just really fast-paced and really frantic. And Yeah, I think I texted you the other night, the last third I thought was absolutely astounding. Yeah. And it's it's the first two-thirds, and I actually found the beginning very engaging when it's, like, him preparing. It's really when the police get involved in the second act is my issue, is, like, where I think it starts getting a little dull. Like, I'm really excited for them to get involved. Because I saw this when I was probably too young to see this. And I haven't seen it since. Right. So I was really excited for the police to get involved. And then a lot of it's just um, meetings. And right. it made me feel that like I was at work. But as opposed so, to... And I get the commentary it's making. Yeah. Don't, don't get me wrong. I get the commentary. But... Um, that's just slowing the film down so much to me that it's like and i get what it's saying and like why it's like you know 
it's uh, I'm sure it's making a, a statement about police and why they end up staying behind is through this bureaucracy that they have established and all these things. But to watch that um, makes you fall asleep three times while you're trying to watch. It. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't fall asleep. During yeah. this movie. Um, I'm. I don't know. I'm, I'm okay with that. I guess. Yeah. Um, I just thought that sec- that middle part with the police was dull, and then the second half, like the third act, the police stuff. When then it all came together. Well, you to know, me. because part of that is that it's. Um, I just want to see more of the jackal. Honestly, like in that second act. I just cared about him. Yeah. Like I was much more invested in that story than I was. Right. Because he, he tells you his plan and then he shows you like parts of it. And then you have to kind of like piece it together yourself. Yeah. as He's like semi piecing it together in front of you until at the end, when you realize what he's doing, you're like, Oh my God, that's, that's brilliant. Like mm-hmm. I understand completely. Sure. sure. <clears throat> um, one of my favorite scenes is, and it's set up so early on where they're talking about how he has to take the calcite to like make himself look old. Mm-hmm. Um, and he uses that as like a one-legged veteran, like getting through the barricades to get up into the building mm-hmm. um, to get his perfect shot. And only fails at killing De Gaulle because of circumstance. Like De Gaulle mm-hmm. is too tall to bend down to like plant a kiss and give a medal. Right. And just bows out of the way at exactly the wrong moment. Yeah. And still almost has that second shot where he can do mm-hmm. it um, before the police like get in and kill him. Yeah. Um, I actually, one of the only ridiculous scenes in the movie where he gets shot by the Tommy gun or whatever you call it. And, um, flies up, flies up into the air. Like he's in the lost boys or something. Yeah. 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 It's, it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it is. Um, (laughs) but whatever. I mean, it's like two seconds and then sure. Sure. Um, yeah, again, like maybe the most dry movie on this list, definitely the most dry movie on this list, but just, um, brilliantly directed and i i i think i saw this movie when i was like 16 maybe or 17 for the first time and it's a movie that i actually like purchased on vhs as like a new like i have a vhs copy of this and i have a dvd copy of this and Mm -hmm. now i've rented this on amazon prime or over the hell i rented it through yeah Um, i'll go ahead with the criticism but you've already kind of i think like acknowledged you know the uh, this once again vincent canby uh, from the new york times says that zimmons way with this material was cool sober and geographically stunning he says but where hitchcock what hitchcock would have made funny zimman plays it straight and perhaps dull allowing himself only that margin of humor provided by the bureaucratic style of the good guys the details are minutely observed and to me just a bit boring so he kind of criticizes like how specific i think some they get into some of the procedural elements and i mean i get it but at the same time it's like well that's the movie (laughs) that's the problem with me is like sure you just didn't like the movie right it's 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 showing you how much the cops had to earn everything they get to catch this guy sure and it really elevates him as a single actor like you know like whatever like assassin Mm -hmm. To like this huge, like it, it almost makes him seem like invincible because mm-hmm. it's taking the combined efforts of like five different organizations spanning several countries mm-hmm. and all these experienced and dedicated law enforcement agents to catch this one man that's kind of just moving with impunity beyond their reach for a long time. Yeah. It, uh, ultimately, it's like uh, I keep kind of like throwing shade at this movie in some ways but i ultimately there's a lot of things i liked about this movie 
I think it was 20 minutes too long. Mm-hmm. I think there's stuff that you could cut out or even just, it's not even cut out. It's like scenes you could trim, really. And I right. think that's really what it comes down to is I think um, Zinman stays too long with some of these scenes at times. And I think it slows down the movie, which I don't think is great all the time for a thriller, which is really ultimately what this movie is, is a crime thriller. Yeah, that's true. And uh, that's really, like, my biggest complaint about it overall. But I mean, I, I look, I completely understand that complaint. I just, it doesn't bother me, right, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe 20 minutes I could see trimmed. Yeah. Like, I can see, like, a couple scenes, especially um, some of the some of the middle police procedural stuff, like, mm-hmm. where they're talking, where you could cut out a couple, sure. couple lines and here and there and, like, yeah. probably trim, like, a few minutes off yeah. of, like, that point. But, right. I mean, ultimately... It's also, it, it's amazing because it's and, very... And I get what you're saying about the painstaking stuff, but there's shots where somebody just walks to a phone and makes a phone call. Right. That last... Like, like a good minute. Minute. Yeah. Maybe a little bit more. And it's like, do you really need... It, it, even if you're trying to show painstaking effort, do you really need to spend the minute on the phone call? So what, what I think you're talking about specifically is the scene when they're in the Hall of Records and the guy's like... It's 8,000 documents. Uh-huh. We need more men. And it's just back and forth between the two of them. Like, that really could have been solved with, like, like you didn't even sure. have to have that scene in there, I guess. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, somehow, Crawl came up before the podcast. And it reminds me of the damn rock climbing right. and Crawl. Like, do I need to see... Like, and, and look, I mean, like... David Lynch does those things all the time, and I and I I I love it because it's a joke. Well, because Lynch is building a sense of unease and awkward tension in you, right? Whereas and and and, and it's a re- little bit of a release because it's comedic, right. you know. If you get what he's doing, where this is just doing it, and there's no, I don't think there's a sense of you. There's not a lot of sense of no, humor. I mean, I, Camby's I, right about that. Like, I, about this I think I think Zimmerman's just being like precious to the book. Sure. Yeah. Um, right. and honestly, like it's. It's very almost like like anachronistic to watch it in this day and age because there's so many things that would have stopped the jackal if like cell phones existed or like instant communication where you got like some dude on a police motorcycle having to like take a dispatch to Nice mm. or whatever, right? And passing the jackal on mm-hmm. the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just I, I I love it. Like it's it's one of my one of my like nostalgic loves of like the 70s like i i really like this movie a lot okay mostly because of fox as a jackal like i think his performance yeah, is that's a really good performance yeah. absolutely okay let's go ahead and move on to number two so number two on the list is peter yates film from 1973 the friends of eddie coyle starring robert mitchell peter boyle richard jordan it has a 100 from critics on rotten tomatoes 88 percent from audiences do you want to go ahead and describe the plot of this movie and what you like about it so much? Yeah, so uh, Mitchum plays Eddie Coyle, who's a aging minor, you know, member of a criminal syndicate. He's like a gun runner. Um, he's facing a long prison sentence and is convinced by the police to turn informer on his friends. Unbeknownst to him, another member of the criminal syndicate is also an informer. Um, so Coyle is tasked with providing guns to this crew who perform these like daring, like daylight bank robberies. Um, 
they event there eventually is found out by um the syndicate or whatever you want to call it that the coil is an informer and there's a hit put out on him. There's a lot in between that too, but I'm like like glossing over, but uh ends with Coil's friend like basically being told that he has to kill Eddie. Um one of the sadder sequences in like my memory of like an end of a movie where <clears throat> you know what Eddie's fate is. Like he's been told by the police that the information he's given him is not enough to like stay his sentence or like reduce his time. So he's going to, he's going to go to jail. Um, he gets drunk, uh, the night that he's going to be murdered, basically, um, taken to a hockey game. It's a really great scene with him, like sort of getting increasingly drunk as he interacts with, um, this friend and the friend's like wife's nephew, who's actually the guy that really is going to be replacing Eddie in the organization. Um, they end up killing him, uh, and you find out that, um, the other guy that was the informant is, even though they know that he killed Eddie, the police, that he's a little too important for them to do anything to him. So really like Eddie's death is just unavenged and ultimately like meaningless in a lot of ways, which pretty depressing. Mm -hmm. Um, Stellar performance from Mitchum, uh, who's one of those guys that I think, you know, I don't know, you can't call Robert Mitchum underrated, but I don't know that he necessarily gets the credit he deserves for the range that he has and what a great actor he is. Um, I'll, I'll always argue Night of the Hunter for my favorite Mitchum performance, but this this is pretty close, mm. um, especially for being so much different. And I think it shows a different range that he has in terms of vulnerability that he didn't doesn't really show in a lot of films. Yeah. And it really is he he plays he plays a desperate man well. Mm-hmm. Like a a guy who's just holding on to this slight sliver of hope that he might not spend the rest of his life in jail or dead and with a really no way out from either of those situations. Like I I think he's kind of resigned to the idea that it's going to be one of those two things that happens but still trying his best to like get out of them um and ultimately fails i mean he's it's a pretty pretty bleak portrayal of life really i guess and definitely the criminal element but a really fascinating look at like and friendship yeah and like what what friendship means when it comes down to when your life is on the line and what you're willing to sacrifice for another person or yeah not sacrifice in certain cases or what you're willing to sacrifice for yourself, I guess, basically. Absolutely. Um, some weird subplot elements that ne- don't necessarily go very anywhere. Not not that they don't go anywhere, but they're just kind of like in there. Um, like the hippies buying the machine guns. And yeah. um, and you, you said this when we talked about this movie, yeah. like offline last week, um, that you feel like the bank robbery stuff is a little... Yeah, even the, I couldn't find much criticism in this movie, honestly. Uh, I did see an Ebert's review of it. He acknowledged what I was basically saying. And he gives it four stars and still had it in his top ten in 1973. But he does say towards the end, if the movie has a flaw, it's that we don't really care much about the bank robberies that are counterpointed with Eddie's situation. We're interested in him. We can get the bank robberies in any summer caper picture. It's strange that a movie's interest should fall off during its action scenes, but this is Eddie Coyle's picture and Mitchum's. So right. even though he like lauded this movie, I, I think I agree with him is that the bank robbery scenes 
would take up way too much screen time. And my point going beyond his was that I think you're so interested in seeing what's going to happen with Coil that getting devoting so much time to the bank robbery scenes slows the movie down and takes you out of his story unnecessarily. Even though I think the bank robbery scenes are well filmed and well executed right. and all those things. But I think I think Peter Yates just liked directing them. Maybe. Yeah. Um, and he, he I mean, he's coming off Bullet. Right. Which, great action movie. He knows how to film that stuff really yeah. well. So it makes sense. I mean, I also wonder, too, if maybe he felt he had to include those things for some action elements. Because there's not a lot of action right. like outside to, to of that. Right. To keep people interested. Sure. Um, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Like, yeah. I, That's just speculation. Not, not having the faith in the material that it can stand up on its own. Maybe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just... Mitchum's coil is, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm, I really gravitate to those characters that are kind of like broken, like outlier characters, um, or people that have like really like deep, deep problems or psychological trauma. And, you know, there's a lot of other movies from this era. Um, and some that we've talked about in the past that kind of fall into that, that realm, but you know, it's just, it, it feels like Eddie Coyle is a guy that you might know. And maybe you don't know those things about him. But, like, it's it's a lived-in world. Like, it feels, and obviously, like, not shot on any kind of, like, sets or whatever. Like, it's shot, like, on location. Probably, I would say, like, 100%. Um, except maybe some of the interior stuff. But... Like, it just feels, like, so vital, the whole thing. And, like, you... I think you recognize early on that, that Eddie's doomed. Yeah. And, like, really early on. Like, maybe within the first, like, 20 minutes. Like, you just know that this guy is fucked. And that's what makes the end of the movie so... Both, like, poignant and difficult to watch. Is, like, knowing what's gonna happen to him. Yeah. Um, He's got that great... Uh, I don't know if you call it soliloquy. He's got that great thing when he's talking about Bobby Orr when they're at the Bruins game at the end of the movie um, where how much future this kid has. Like, can you imagine like being, being that young? 24 being, years being old. Being the best and, in the world yeah. and what a future that guy's got. And here's a guy that like, you know, you know, from your voyeuristic standpoint that he's got no future. And it just, yeah, <clears throat> it's like what different decisions could this Eddie Coyle have made like over the course of his life to not end up in this position? Yeah. But then at that point, it's like, even from the very beginning of the movie, it's inevitable. Like, it's yeah. it's basically just, like, you're kind of just waiting for him to, to die, sure. honestly. And, it's, and I um, think the visuals and the and the, <clears throat> the cinematography and the colors and everything supplement that feeling, which I thought was really well-executed directorially, is everything such muted colors and, like you said realistic to life there's yeah. so much of it it has that 70s look to it that, and you get to this bright ice in this big stadium full of life people cheering going wild with these bright uniforms and for the first time eddie coyle seems alive right and he's giving the, that little speech and it's like 
it's it's the most life that you get in the entire film in some ways is that hockey stadium yeah and watching and the most action uh, even even more so than the bank robberies like watching people play on the ice and like you know hit each other and the puck moving around it's the most action-packed sequence in the entire thing and it's the most lively and then knowing i mean so i think those visuals nicely supplement the the feeling of that scene as well right i agree with that and sort of like also because you don't know for sure i i think the first time i saw this i kind of felt like like eddie was sort of clueless that it was going to happen but i think the second time i i get the feeling that that eddie just knows like what's coming like he's He's getting, like, so drunk because he's just embracing the fact that this is my last chance to do anything. Sure. And uh, in a way, like, that's even, like, that's not even, like, subtle. That's spoken because he knows he's going to jail. So regardless. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, he's trying to have this last good night. But I think he also knows that one way or the other, like, his life is over. And he's just trying to make the most of that one last time and sort of overlook the fact that it's his friend that's going to do it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Really really well directed and i i i like some of yates's movies um like he did mother jugs and speed and he mm-hmm. did a uh, crawl which you know i i love crawl and um the deep which is kind of a weird movie but like it's mm-hmm. it's fine yeah um but really he never does anything else like this like this is right <clears throat> like so singular which is weird that like I guess maybe he just liked to dabble in like as many genres as he could, but it's just interesting that somebody could make like such a good crime film and then not really like make that their, you know, their calling card. Sure. Like Scorsese and Coppola in a lot of ways and like Tarantino later, you know, Michael Mann is another good Mm -hmm. example of people that like find that thing and they do it really well and they stay with it. And Yates makes a pretty amazing movie. Mm Mm-hmm. And then moves know, on to something else, right? Yeah, and so yeah. completely different. Um, it's definitely something that I think it takes a little bit of patience to get through. Like I think you really, you know, to your point, like taking out the the bank robbery scenes. It's it's it really is just like a straight character drama. Yeah. Um, but again, like what I said earlier, and this is one of the things I love the most about this movie, and a lot of movies like it is that you don't have like a protagonist really like you're the character that you're invested in is a criminal and he's mm-hmm. not a person that's made good life choices and not mm-hmm. somebody that's really i wouldn't i don't want to say worth rooting for but really he's not really worth rooting for except that you do because mitchum does such a good job of like investing like a weary humanity in that role yeah and he's not mean no, it, Eddie Coyle is, like, the friendliest, sure, most, like, accommodating guy ever. Right, like he's yeah. just trying to do the right thing. Right. And I think that's why you can sympathize with him, is because he's not mean in any way. He's just a guy that's trying to get by. Right. He's just trying to live. Yeah. Right. But ultimately, that serves to be his undoing. Sure. You know, like, yeah. he doesn't become an informant. He goes to jail, you know. Maybe he doesn't make it out of jail because he's kind of an old guy anyway, but sure. maybe he does, you know, right. and he lives. Certainly doesn't have to betray his friends, but he's just trying to like, like I said, he's trying to find any way out of the situation yeah. by taking like this carrot dangled by these like disreputable police 
who are just like completely using him Mm -hmm. um or you know to work with the criminal right you know his criminal compatriots and and get out of it that way but yeah yeah, really really fantastic movie and again like maybe my second favorite like mitchum performance yeah yeah so let's go ahead and move on to number one on the list which I think will probably end up taking us a while to talk about. But number one on the list is William Friedkin's 1971 film, The French Connection, starring Gene Hackman, Roy Schneider, Fernando Ray, Tony Lobianca. has a 98% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 87% from audiences. I think this these might be your highest rated films so far in, 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 in terms of Rotten Tomatoes scores right. like as a whole list. I think it's funny that I think Chinese Bookie is the lowest and still both in the 80s, maybe. Yeah. No. Yeah. 80, 80, 83. Yeah. So, yeah. But, um, but yeah, I think overall it's probably your highest uh, so far. So, go ahead and tell us a little bit about the French connection. I think we probably have a lot of things to talk about with this movie. Um, yeah. So, just to, I guess, like briefly summarize the plot, um, based on a novel or a book, I guess, like a, Mm that's about like real events where the French were importing heroin in the United States. Um, that's the premise of this, uh, Gene Hackman and Roy Schneider play New York vice detectives. I guess they are, mm-hmm. um, Popeye Doyle, uh, the Hackman character and like maybe his most iconic role or one of his most iconic roles. Yeah. And Roy Schneider is cloudy. I can't remember his full name. Cloudy's his, uh, whatever, pseudonym or whatever you call it. Yeah, Russo. Um, the character's name? Not very good guys. Hmm. Like, they're pretty... Uh, I didn't even know how to say it. They're very loose with, like, their procedure in order to, like, fight crime. And their goal is to, you know, catch criminals. Like, they're very... You know, they're not thieves, they're not murderers, whatever. It's not like your typical bad guy cops, but they're definitely not good people. Um, Popeye Doyle especially is, he's he's racist, he's violent, he's a drunk, he's a womanizer. Um, not above roughing up a suspect in order to get information or doing what basically amounts to like an illegal shakedown. Um they catch on to the fact that through following uh, the Lobianca's character, uh, Sal, right? Yeah. Um, who's entertaining a bunch of like mid-level like drug dealers basically at this like nice nightclub. Um, they sort of get onto the fact that there's this guy who they've suspected for a long time as a front for a lot of the drugs in New York and through like surveillance and following them. Um, come on to the fact that, you know, they're, this shipment is coming over. Uh, there's great scene early on in the movie, like maybe in the first half hour where they're shaking down, a like a bar full of like black people basically. Mm-hmm. And, um, Popeye learns from an undercover detective in the bar that, you know, there's nothing on the streets, but there's the shipment coming in that everybody's waiting for to get right. Um, so... So I don't want to say it. So they figure out like through their detective work that this Frenchman is bringing the stuff in. Um, 
there's a couple of really great chase sequences where they're trying to um, get them. They find out that it's in the, what is it, the, the running boards of a, like an expensive car that mm-hmm. the um, Elaine Chalbert or whatever convinced like an actor to bring over with him to the United States. Um, and then kind of gets away with it, sort of. Like, yeah. not necessarily gets away with like everything, but definitely like you know the antagonist doesn't like fully get his comeuppance. Right, he escapes. Yeah. Custody. Um, yeah. Well, it's left to open. Right. It's at the end of the movie. I whether... I always presume that he he gets away. Yeah, I think probably our interpretation is that he gets away. If you follow, if you make the sequel to the movie French Connection Two, which. I have never seen because yeah, I've neither. heard that it's not very good, but he does survive if the sequel is canon. Right. So. And continue the quote-unquote French connection. Yeah. Um, brilliantly powerful performance by Hackman. Yes. Um, playing was, a guy... Who best actor for this. Playing a man who is this veneer of like Sort of friendly, you know, do you, do you, did you pick your feet in Poughkeepsie? Which is a line that he uses, for those who haven't seen it, he, he asks suspects that a lot of times. Like, you know, he, he asks them these almost, like, inane, nonsensical questions, right. with one of them always being, like, you know, have you ever been to Poughkeepsie? Do you, did you pick your feet in Poughkeepsie? Like, you know, like, tell me. Which fascinating strategy i mean like when you're watching it's like you get the strategy the schneider character russo is asking these very commonplace like pragmatic sensible questions and popeye doyle by asking these idiotic questions in a threatening tone is trying to make the suspect more pliable to answer the questions the sensible questions that are being asked just confuse them right um but just underneath this veneer, like this just seethingly angry, violent, unhappy, like monster, basically, who, and you, you, you brought this up and we've talked about it in the past, like definitely the template for like the more like quote unquote modern detective, yeah. um, the Jimmy McNulty from the wire, yeah. um, Raylan from justified, like these yeah. guys who, <clears throat> Just they have nothing in them, but like, yeah. I mean, and I, and I use those as examples because they're much like Popeye Doyle. Popeye Doyle is a glad hander. He can walk up to you and shake your hand and be nice and be friendly and be one of the boys, and just as easily punch you in the face right afterwards. And right. he actually does that yeah, in the, the scene with the undercover black detective yeah. um, in the Harlem nightclub, where he roughs him up, throws him in the back room so he can get information out of him, not blow his cover. And he's sitting there and he's friendly with him. And he's, you know, and they're having, you know, exchanging information and everybody's cool. And then he has no compunction about him rolling yeah, up his fist it? and asking him where you want it and punching him dead and punching him hard, like brutally in the face. Right. And then manhandling him back out into the bar again. And one of the most interesting things, too, and it kind of flies in the face of like the McNulty and um, uh, Given or Raylan character. Mm-hmm. Raylan Givens. Raylan right? Givens, yeah. Um, Popeye Doyle might take on cases that he's not necessarily assigned, but basically is following protocol when he does things. Like when they're following, um, the Lobianca character, um, 
early in the movie, they don't do anything illegal. I mean, they set up a sting operation and they just surveil him for a long time and try and figure out like what his deal is. And it's like they go through the protocol getting wires. Right. They 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 go to their lieutenant, they ask to be put on this case. I mean it's like like you think about like in the nineteen eighties specifically, like any movie that involves and like the Lethal Weapon movies are good examples of this, but like um like forty eight hours, like all these ones that involve like the police where they're loose cannons. Like Mm -hmm. they're they'll go to any length to solve the crime. And that makes him a hero. And Popeye Doyle is not a good man, but he's also not a loose cannon. He's just a police officer. And he's and, and that's the dichotomy of this character that's so interesting is he is not a likable person, yeah. but he's a great cop. Yeah. Like yeah his, his ultimate, even if it's not always on the up and up exactly what he does, he's a great cop. Yeah, his ultimate purpose is always... Because it's the thing like... Um, I, I keep going back to the scene because I love this scene in the movie because I think it reveals so much about Doyle as a character, um, which is when they go in the bar to like roust everybody. Mm-hmm. There's the threat that they're going to violate these people's civil rights. You know, we're going to arrest you. Get in that yeah. phone booth and lock yourself in. You know, shaking people down without ever, except with the undercover cop who it's that's a setup to like maintain, mm-hmm. you know, the facade. Mm-hmm. No violence. Right. It's just all implied. You know, it's it's bluster and it's bravado. And it's just the menace of people knowing that you don't fuck with Popeye Doyle. Sure. And that they all know who Popeye Doyle is. And mm-hmm. he doesn't have to, like, go outside the law on that point because he skirted it so... That's such a fine line that he's still got the same end result. Mm-hmm. Which, honestly, at that point is, like, nothing because, like, everybody's... Like, nobody's holding anything of any kind of value. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, a, I don't know. It's, I, I said this about Mitchum. I'll say the same thing about, about Gene Hackman. Like, I don't think that Gene Hackman is underrated. Like, I think that's a ridiculous like term to use, but I don't know that like, you know, until he passed away that I don't, I don't know that we ever really properly rated Gene Hackman for as great as he is. And I think this role shows like this range of, ability in this man to play this character who's 40 years later however long what what's what's french connection 71 71 71? Mm -hmm. so at this point almost 50 years like past that point where the man is still like it's it's an iconic performance like you know popeye doyle and you sorry gene hackman's still alive is he (laughs) yeah oh well my bad gene hackman Uh, yeah i think he's retired officially now though who died? I don't know. Who died that I would confuse with Gene Hackman dying? I don't know. Well, I'm glad he's still alive. I like yeah. Gene Hackman. Yeah. I think he's just pretty much kind of retired. He's pretty old. Oh, yeah. He he's he retired in 2004. Oh. Welcome to Mooseport was his last movie. Boy, what a way <laughs> to go out. <laughs> um, I don't even know what that movie is. Ray Romano movie. Why would I think that Gene Hackman was dead? I don't know. Anyway, so yeah. just such a like wide range of yeah. ability and so many different movies with like him playing like completely different characters and able to just fully invest like himself in that character and become that character so that they're all like, you know, like there's no 
and we, we we talked about this when we were talking about Bill Murray when we had the third man mm-hmm. episode where you see Bill Murray and you see him you see Bill Murray in every character Bill Murray plays for the most part mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson is the same way I think like sure. characters like Johnny Depp is the same way yeah but there is no semblance no similarity between Gene Hackman in the conversation and Gene Hackman in the French Connection, right? They're one hundred percent mannerisms. Sure. And I think we talked a little bit about this when we talked about um, uh, Eastwood Western. Uh, oh, Unforgiven. Unforgiven is that I was saying it's like the more I see Gene Hackman's been on these lists a lot of times now, yeah. a lot of different lists because he's showing up on the Wes Anderson stuff. You know, I mean, so. We've, we've talked a lot about Gene Hackman movies, and it's like he is different in every single yeah. movie. It's funny, though, that you bring up Unforgiven because that I was going to make that comparison. Yeah. Like, his character in Unforgiven is basically the ultimate culmination of what Popeye Doyle is. Yeah. It's I like that. that's Popeye Doyle at the end of his career. Yeah. Using that name and that bluster mm-hmm. to, like, keep order. Sure. And that really is his goal, is to keep yeah. order, but yeah. through menace and through... Sure. Well, I mean, one of the things we've talked about, you know, how he skirts the line, one thing that Popeye Doyle does in this movie, um, as, the, as the climax of the chase sequence, is shoots a suspect in the back. Right. And the... Especially the NYPD didn't like was extremely angry over that going into the movie because it's not proper. It's not the way that you're supposed to do things. Now the detectives that these two Doyle and Russo are based right. off on are on the set and were seemingly fine with it. So I don't know if they were upset because that breaks, you know, uh, you know, kind of like the kayfabe, like you know, chivalry. Yeah, like, huh. like where like they were they were upset that that actually got shown on film, even though it happens, or if people were actually upset because for the reasons they state. But that's not an honorable thing, right? And at the same time, it's a movie, so sure. But I mean, it's trying to be pretty realistic yeah. uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. I think. What do you what, what do you do in that circumstance? I mean, this is a guy that like you got to bring him down, sure. and he's not yeah. like surrendering to you. He's sure. fleeing from you again. I, but I think I, I think my point though is that like it's not honorable, right? But I think it goes to the heart of that character, and part of part of what this movie is doing is making you think of where do you fall in these kind of decisions sure. I, like you know like yeah he's not a great guy he's Popeye Doyle is not a good person but he's a good cop and where do we draw the line of trusting these people right to make the decisions that they make and I think that's one of those things and it's like I mean it's and it's unfortunate with that scene because in some ways and I I think Ebert might no maybe it's Cisco or something that mentions it, but somebody mentioned this, and I agree with him. It's unfortunate that that scene gets so much uh, press, really, like that it, that it, that everybody talks about the tr- the car chase scene, right? And it is; it's one of the best car chase sequences that's ever been filmed because there's so much more in this movie than that car chase. Sure. Not only in terms of just thriller aspects of it, like, you know, I mean, there's, there's other scenes that are 
chase sequences to some degree. Like yeah, them the walking the the subway scene, and then even the early scene of them just following people on the street. Yeah, I I, I love the. I love Doyle tired, drunk at the end of like a 12 hour shift, forcing Cloudy into doing an impromptu stakeout the entire night so they can follow this quote unquote greaser, you mm-hmm. know, home and figure yeah. out what he's doing. And it turns out that he's like folding newspapers in his deli. Right. And still convinces him to stay on the stakeout because he's convinced that there's got to be something there. And it's, yeah. um, Brilliant character development between the two of them. Like sure. their their chemistry is is amazing. Um and little moments too throughout the entire movie where you just you know that like other people in law enforcement have this begrudging like enough begrudging respect of Popeye Doyle mm-hmm. that when they're shown that he has something they'll believe him, but also like a really high level of contempt. Mm-hmm. To the point where, um, I mean, they accuse him of like getting a cop killed, that he's, Mm -hmm. his hunches are wrong, you know, that he's not a reliable like detective, but that he gets results. And their lieutenant says that early on where it's like, you know, you guys have like led the whatever city in a, like in drug arrests, but like, what are you actually like doing? Like, you're just like shaking down people for dime bags or whatever the line is. Right. Um, and I mean, I think it's it's this really like complex look at, you know, a guy who is good at his job, but like at what cost? And sure, and I think I, I and and that's why I make that comparison. I think to especially somebody like the Jimmy McNulty character from The Wire, where in a similar vein, he, I mean, and and, and both of them in in some regards are loose cannons, but the, in the sense of like it's a very realistic way of having a loose cannon in a police department. I think both Doyle and Jimmy McNulty are very realistic in the way that they're loose cannons. Sure. They're not the 80s stylized versions. Yeah, I agree. Um, but I think McNulty is someone else who very much fits that mold of like, you know, he's charming. You know, people seemingly like him. They respect him. Right. But he goes off and does his own thing. He doesn't always follow procedure. And... I think this movie in 1971 is asking some of the same questions that right and how was asking in the early 2000s. So like to the point of him shooting shooting what's his name the French guy in the back. Yeah. Um you know Char- Charmier Charmier or however you say the Charmier, yeah. Gives him a little wave on the subway cuz yeah, he, right. he he made him, you know, he knows that he's being tailed. Sure. So he's like, you know, goodbye. Mm-hmm. And then Popeye returns that favor like Popeye gives him the little wave and it's like at that point is that what it's about like Mm -hmm. is it really like is it about solving the crime and getting the drugs off the street or is it about your own personal set need to have like this self-satisfaction of like hey you basically said fuck me well you know what like fuck you like right and 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 I think again like and I Jimmy McNulty, the the way that he's described by other characters is he's got to be the smartest fucking guy in the room. Right. And I think that's exactly what's going on with Popeye Doyle a lot of times is it's not about justice to him. It's about proving he's the smartest fucking guy and he can capture you. He can get you. Right. And I, I think that that's what makes him a good cop. And it's also what makes him an asshole. Person. Right. Just a guy that lives this empty life where he's just picking sure. up a chick on the street. 
riding her bicycle and then like having drunken sex with her that he barely remembers. So I, I want to ask you about the ending of this okay. movie. So after the wave, he 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 catches you know they 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 catch him in the act basically. Ha, you know they they have a, a, a blockade at the bridge. Everybody starts fleeing back into the warehouse. And Charnier ends up moving away from the Italian mobsters that were involved in the deal and goes in a different direction. And Popeye Doyle chases him into this abandoned warehouse and thinks he sees Charnier in a doorway and shoots him. And we find out that it's a cop that he shoots. And then the... And you see the horror on Roy Schneider's face as Russo. Like, like you shot whatever the guy's name is. And Popeye Doyle ends up running off into another room in the warehouse. Long shot. We see him run into that, that, that open doorway into another room. And then we hear gunshot and it ends. What's your, what do you think the, not from like a like from a plot standpoint, it's like I think it's supposed to be. Did he shoot? Did it, was it Charnier? Did he shoot him? Like is he shooting at just somebody seeing something? Like I, I get plot wise, you're just it's up in the air, right? Do you have a specific interpretation of like what that movie's trying to do there at the end? Because I mean, I think it's the ultimate culmination of what we've already talked about in a lot of ways. I think that it's that. To Doyle, him being right and him winning, like, the ends justify the means. Like, it's, he shot another cop, it was accidental, he didn't mean to shoot him. He thought he was, like, shooting at a suspect. And instead of that being the thing where, like, he goes and tends to that cop or whatever, like, lets the guy get away because, whatever, he's just murdered another man. Mm -hmm he's just going off and he's going to shoot again. And you don't know who he shot. Like maybe sure. he shot another cop. Sure. Maybe he got shot because mm -hmm. he's so headstrong right. and so singularly minded to like achieve this victory that he's willing to do that. And it's, um, I mean, I think it's, I think it's ambiguous enough that you can take from it, whatever you want. Yeah, I agree. I mean, to, to me, I always just assume that, that he failed in it. That yeah. it was, you know, it's like, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown moment where he's just repeating the same mistakes over and over again. And Yeah. So one of the few criticisms I saw of this, and I think it ties into this ending, we talked off podcast about the idea that this film doesn't really take a stance in a lot of ways on the Popeye Doyle character. It just displays him for who he is. Right. And doesn't really judge that whatsoever so one of the criticisms of this it's the only really criticism that i could find is from jeff andrew of Time Out london he says it won undeserved acclaim for its efficient and unremarkable ele elevated railway chase and its clumsy showy emphasis on grainy sordid realism the performances are strong although hackman has done far better than his portrayal of the hard-nosed cop obsessively tracking down narcotics ring using methods disapproved of by his superiors. The real problems, however, are Freakin's nervy, noisy, undisciplined pseudo-realism sits uneasily with his suspense-motivated and shock editing. 
And that, compared to, say, Siegel's Dirty Harry, the film maintains no critical distance from, in, from indeed, it rather relishes in its lovable hero's brutal vigilante psychology. So I'm going to take that last piece because I'm going to ignore all of this stuff about the realism and, right. you know, the grittiness because that's just the time period that's filmed in. But Lovable. Oh. Right. So now Siskel says in a very positive review, I think he gave it four stars. Siskel says, and, and maybe there is some merit to what he's saying with other critics. Siskel says that the only downfall of the movie is that when you come out of, um, that when he came out of the theater, he wanted to find somebody to throw against the wall <laughs> because he was like that amped up from like watching this movie. And there's similar criticisms to some degree, like, you know, or at least experiences of people feeling like, you know, energetic and nervous and like, you know, sure. after watching this movie and wanting to act in some way. Doesn't the ending in some way cast a doubt on Popeye Doyle is my question. Yeah, 100%. So, I mean, the way the, I... The, en the ending is foreshadowed by the scene that I talked about earlier where the... Um, they're the feds, right, that have been called in to help um, yeah. with okay. the investigation. Uh -huh. sure. and they're reticent to listen to what Popeye Doyle has yeah. to say. Right. Because, you know, he caused the cop to die before. Yeah. And that's the thing is, like, you know, what right. about the next guy? Like, what, right. what, what about when it happens again? Yeah. I don't think you're... I think the end of that movie ultimately is a condemnation of Popeye Doyle, despite the fact that it keeps some sort of objectiveness about the way it shows his police work. In the end, I think it's one of the more haunting endings in any movie. Right. Is that long shot of him f running through that next door and not seeing what happens and hearing a gunshot? Because like you said, it could be another cop. Sure. You know, it could be anything. It could be anything, you know, but it's like, it's almost like he's chasing ghosts at that point. I think it's like, he kills a, he kills a cop thinking that it's the suspect and he's still run and he, that doesn't make him stop. He runs through another door, right? probably firing a gun. It's like, I think it's the ultimate condemnation of his obsessiveness. Right. And at least that's my interpretation of that Or maybe like ending. in some like broad minded sense, like a condemnation of the laws obsessiveness with justice over like individual human like rights Maybe. of existence. Sure, 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 absolutely. I don't think it's a positive no portrayal at the end of that movie. But it's interesting that Siskel felt that way because you think about like the era this movie was made in and you know, probably like there's a lot of people that could relate to Popeye Doyle. Sure. Popeye Doyle is not as relatable anymore. Right. I don't think. Yeah. Like I so it's I'll I'll draw like a comparison to another movie that I that I love which is um True Romance. Mm -hmm. Where when I was a kid, I wanted mm -hmm. to be Clarence Worley. Sure. And watching True Romance last year for the podcast, I realized I don't want to be Clarence Worley. Like there's not really a whole lot to recommend in being Clarence Worley. So maybe that's the thing is maybe at the time this movie came out, there was enough people who saw enough of Popeye Doyle in themselves where they were like, yeah, like that's, you know, I want to be that guy. And I mean, maybe it is like the, the benefit of hindsight from our part, like the distance of whatever yeah. time that you can look at it and like condemn him. But 
he's definitely a compelling character and there's no easy answer as to anything about you know yeah really any of the movie like in a lot of ways um i, I i'm never gonna say his name right charnier. elaine charnier yeah is much more like urbane and charming and presentable mm-hmm. than popeye doyle sure but you know one guy is like ostensible well not even ostensibly one guy's the bad guy and one guy's the good guy mm-hmm. but you know is there really that much difference sure so i don't know yeah i mean i just think i think this movie has a much higher place in crime film and fiction than maybe a lot of people might give it credit for i think it establishes that model popeye doyle does of what we see a lot of in the past 15 years in our protagonist in crime. Right. I also think it, in some ways, comes 30 years before the idea of the anti-hero becomes prevalent in what they call the golden age of television now when The Sopranos comes on. Right. In the sense of, I mean, a lot the, the goal of a lot of those shows was the idea of, hey, here's this guy, he's... He's, he's not perfect and, you know, he's flawed in a lot of ways and he's probably a bad person, but we're going to make you sympathize with them. I mean, Walter White being like one of the prominent examples sure. in Breaking Bad. And the idea there is to make you culpable by the time that you realize like, oh, you're kind of cheering this person on a little bit. So you're kind of culpable. And then it's like there's points where you can't. You have to realize your own culpability in enjoying what you've seen. Right. It and I you, think this is the 71 version of that. It makes you question your complicity yeah. in... Because you like the character so much, is it okay for the character to have done what they did? Right. And that's why, like, I, I think... I mean, I think the ending's brilliant in that sense that, like, yeah. it doesn't give you an easy answer it to it. It doesn't, yeah. Um, and I, I love movies where you yeah. don't have, yeah. like, an easy out. Like, you don't know mm-hmm. for sure exactly. The director's not forcing you to feel what they feel or right. forcing you in a certain way. It's one of the reasons why... It's leaving you with a big question mark at the end. Yes. It's one of the reasons why, for as, like, technically impressive as it is, like, I fucking hate Titanic. Because mm-hmm. right. don't force my emotions on me... Mm-hmm. With your maudlin ass like death scene, mm-hmm. just because that's how you want me to feel. Like, let me feel how I naturally feel for the movie, and then it's even more effective. Right. right. And I imagine there's some people that would tell you that Popeye Doyle is like a hero and sure. is a person worth emulating. And, like, you know, there's plenty of Facebook posts all the time, like, we need to whoop our kids' asses again, or you need to let kids go eat mud, you know, right. because that's how we grew up, and we yeah. grew up tough. And I'm sure there's plenty of people like that that would tell you that, yeah, yeah. like, the world needs Popeye Doyle. Sure. To be the hard-ass... No, I mean, the, I mean, the the argument was being made 15 years ago that the world needs um, Jack Bauer. Right. You know, I mean, so, I mean, I think Doesn't similarly, really, though. Huh? Jack, we, we really do need Jack Bauer. <laughs> yeah. It's just... Too too many nuclear bombs going on. <laughs> so um, yeah, so I, I think this film is uh, is really important when it comes to just crime, like the crime genre. And I think it's I think it's actually underrated and as as well known as it is, I think those elements get lost because of some of the more famous things, like some of the lines, like the Poughkeepsie 
line, the, yeah. the, the chase sequence. Like, I think those kind of things drown out really the importance of the storytelling. And, um, it's, it's interesting you say that because when I was a teenager, I think this movie was generally considered to be like maybe the best crime movie of all time. Or at least like one of the top crime. It was movies. it was it was very much talked about when we were teen like around the time we were teenagers. Like it was very much talked about in film books and stuff right. that I was reading. I don't hear about this movie anymore. It's getting lost. And I think it's to your point that I think that everybody knows it. Don't get me wrong. Like I mean, the people that know film have heard of this movie. I don't know how many people have actually seen it because I think that again, like I think that enough other sources have taken. Yeah. I mean fucking ronin basically yeah. does the same thing sure not as well and but from nearly, a different perspective as well yeah but there's so many movies where it's like just because we say this is a good guy can you sympathize with him yeah and like the anti-hero and it, it happened through like pop culture through like comics yeah. and television yeah. and yeah. video games and cinema I think maybe it's just that there's so many other examples that maybe it's almost moved past its prime in terms of people being able to like discuss it because there's so many other things they can discuss that they're more familiar with. Not to say that you shouldn't watch French Connection because I think, you know, I think anyone that enjoys movies should see things like the French Connection because I think it's a really important and like culturally significant film. Um, yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's just, it's really well directed. It's, it's pretty beautifully shot at points. Um, brilliant performances by a lot of the actors in it. Uh, especially Ray Schneider and, um, you know, particularly Hackman. But then also because it makes you ask like tough questions. You know what I mean? But then again, at the same time, everybody bitches about the ending of the Sopranos. Sure. Because there's not giving you an ending. Sure. So a lot of times people don't like to not get an ending either. Well, they bitched about it when it went off the air, and then now that the 20th anniversary just passed, everybody was lauding how brilliant it was. So, it's it's one of those things where it's like, you give us some time, and suddenly the thing that everybody hated was brilliant. But, um, yeah, I think I've seen this four times in my life is what I estimate. I didn't see it until I was 19 or 20. I think Chuck showed it to me for the first time. Right. And um, every time i watched it since, it's been just as good, I thought. Yeah, I, 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 I see new things in it, and... It's still just as effective, I think. This was only the second time I'd seen it, so it was yeah. still pretty like fascinating to me and captivating. Yeah. Although, to your point, like in film books, I had seen yeah. certain shots from this movie like sure. a thousand times. Sure, <clears throat> particularly uh, the scene from the the poster and you know one of the most important scenes in the movie when he shoots the suspect in the back. Sure, and that shot, I mean, uh, that's it's so that's it's so good. Um, I've seen people, and I and I understand where they're coming from. I, I've seen people the thrust of his body after he gets shot from that perspective is capping off an actual, like they compare it to the idea of an actual climax. Um, Oh, right. With the thrust of his body, which I think is, is probably pretty accurate in a lot of ways. Um, one thing I want you to do real quick is I'm going to go through a bunch of names and I want you to imagine them as Popeye Doyle. And I just want you to give me a yes, maybe or a no. Okay. And all these people were actually offered the role before... Before Gene Hackman. Before Gene Hackman. Okay. Paul Newman. Nah. Okay. He turned it down. Actually, he he was outside their budget. 
This was only two million dollar budget. Too 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 smooth. There's not enough rough edge to him. Steve McQueen. Mm, sure. Yeah. Little little too old at that point, maybe, but yeah. he he would have done fine. Yeah. Turn it down didn't only get typecast. <clears throat> James Conn. I don't know that Khan has the physical presence, but Khan definitely has the acting ability yeah. and the face. He would he would have been fine. Okay, turn it down. Reason unknown. Peter Boyle. That's ridiculous. <laughs> turn it down because he thought that he didn't like the racist and um, kind of vigilante aspects of Popeye's character. Lee Marvin. Nah, he's too he's too stoic to be Popeye Doyle. Yeah. He turned it down because he hates cops. It's <laughs> interesting. Jackie Gleason. <clears throat> Shit, that'd be perfect. How old was Jackie Gleason at that time? Like probably in his like fifties, fifties maybe. Yeah, late fifties. Yeah, man, that'd be. I mean, and then I would never take that role away from Gene Hackman, but right, I would yeah. love to have seen Jackie Gleason in that yeah. role. Um, he was considered a box office failure at the time, um, because of the last couple of movies that had come out, so he didn't get the role. Charles Bronson. No. Terrible. Yeah. He... <clears throat> Robert Mitchum. Again, like, I, I just feel like Mitchum was too old. Mm. But, like, acting-wise, Mitchum would have been fantastic, yeah. but... So, he, he hated the story and turned it down. Okay. Adam West. I would like to see that. Yeah. I think that would be... Yeah. That that would be pretty amazing. And, and you're sure. Yeah, we'll just leave it at that. Um, so, all of those people were offered this role. Um, and They then, offered Adam West this role? And either decided, no, we're not going to go that way, sorry, or was turned down. They actually cast a New York Times columnist named Jimmy Breslin that had never acted before. Why do I know Jimmy Breslin? He's written books. I'm not sure what you know him from. I mean, I've heard the name before, just being a famous columnist back then. But um, So they cast him, and he actually did the role for two weeks. And they realized it just wasn't a good fit. Plus, he didn't want to drive a car. Because he didn't, apparently he's a New Yorker, he didn't know how to drive. So he, he was uncomfortable with it. And they ended up finally going to Hackman. Like, all of that to get to Hackman, which is probably Hackman's, I don't know if it's best performance, it's certainly up there, and certainly one of his most iconic performances. So it's like weird things like that that happen just shocked me when I saw all those people before right, they really got to crazy. Hackman. Yeah. Um, they also wanted, like, originally offered William Shatner the role, the, the Roy Schneider role, which I also can't, I can't imagine that, but. Yeah, out of all those people, um. I think Khan would have been fine. I think Gleason would have been like amazing in it. Gleason's really interesting. Yeah. Like that jovial fatness, like masking that <laughs> right. menace sure. would be Yeah. It, it would have been really good. Yeah. Yeah. Of course there's certain elements that wouldn't play out because Hackman, like with his um pork pie hat is still like a pretty handsome, like striking figure, and yeah. I don't know that Jackie Gleason is right. like Bringing home the shapely like lady on the bicycle, sure. Which is I I think like a like it's a it's a minor scene like very yeah. minor, but it's a really 
interesting look at Popeye Doyle as a person and as a character. You know, that he gets mm-hmm. handcuffed to the bed in his own handcuffs after, like, having sex with this right. random woman. Yeah. When he's supposed to be, like... What are they doing going to get the affidavit or something at mm-hmm. that point? Mm-hmm. Like, something really important for their case. And yeah. there he wakes up, like, drunk and sure. I mean, late. Again, not to belabor the point, Jermaine McNall. Yeah, it really I is. Mean, yeah. Um, okay, so any any final thoughts? No, yeah. I mean, a classic of yeah. American cinema. Sure. Definitely... I know it's on, like, the AFI list. I know it's on, like, the culturally important, like, yeah. Smithsonian list or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I don't think enough can be said about how, if if, if if you if you like film and if you care about, like, American film and modern cinema, that you should yeah. really see it. Right. Okay. So, that's our show tonight, everybody. I just wanted to remind everyone that we'll be taking a break for next week. We'll be coming back in two weeks to do 1982's list for top five b horror movies of that year and then the first week of april we'll be coming uh, back with the top five shakespeare adaptations and the week after that we will have a third man series with a new guest um and we'll be talking about eddie murphy movies so that's what we'll have coming up for the next couple weeks remember uh please if you can help us you know like share subscribe um leave us feedback our email address is two guys five movies at gmail.com that's the number two and five two guys five movies at gmail.com you can also find us two guys five movies on facebook uh you can also uh find us on on the podbean uh, app uh, where you can leave comments so there's a lot of different places you can find us apple podcast itunes google play stitcher uh, thank you for your support. We've been seeing a lot of a lot, a lot of new traffic, um, a lot of new listeners, so we appreciate that. Yeah, we really do. Um, and any feedback that you have throughout the process, we would appreciate. Yep. I hope everybody has a good night, and uh, talk to you next week. Yeah, thank you. Have a good night.